Welcome to Imaginal Inspirations with me, David Lorimer. This is a podcast in which I ask my guests about experiences, people, and books that have inspired their life and work. And today I'm speaking to my old friend, Professor Ravi Ravindra. And I think, Ravi, we met um, in Delphi, this is my recollection, uh, in 19, around 1988 uh, at a conference. And I think it's very appropriate, if that's correct, um, because um, in being in Delphi, um, we are encouraged to know ourselves, know thyself. So Ravi is a professor emeritus at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where he's talking from today. And he was in three different departments, professor in three different departments, comparative religion, philosophy, and physics. And he's been a member of the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton and a fellow of the Indian Institute of Advanced Study in Simla and founding director of the Threshold Award for Integrative Knowledge. He's an honorary member of the Scientific and Medical Network, and he's known well um, the teachings, particularly of uh, Krishnamurti and Madame de Salzman, um, but also through these Gurdjieff, Yoga, Zen, and being immersed in mystical teachings of Indian and Christian traditions. And he's got too many books to be able to list them all. But in terms of our interest today, he's written on the Gospel of John. He's written on science and the sacred, the spiritual roots of yoga, and the wisdom of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And quite recently, the Bhagavad Gita, a guide to navigating the battle of life, which seems a very appropriate title to be talking about today. So, Ravi, now tell me about a, a shaping moment in your choice of work or your kind of vocation in life, or, or more than one, if you like. <laughs> yeah. No, I particularly one that has very much influenced me, although I did not really understand it until much later. I was about 13 years old, and my father was a very distinguished lawyer and very busy. But whenever he could find any kind of a respite to have a little free time, he would read poetry. He was very interested in poetry from several languages, certainly English, Persian, Sanskrit, Hindi, Punjabi, Urdu, several languages. And he would just sit in the sunlight, especially in the winter, and just read poetry. And if anybody walked by, he would read it aloud to them, but he wasn't especially addressing it to them. So on one occasion, I was, as I said, only 13 years old, but he was so highly regarded by everybody and especially from us as father, more or less like a godlike figure. And so he read something from the Bhagavad Gita in Sanskrit and then he translated it into Hindi, but I will do this in English so that you know what, it, what he said. This is a remark of Krishna that at the end of many births, a wise person comes to me realizing that all there is is Krishna. Such a person is a great soul, but very rare. And now my father, as I said, everybody looked up to him actually, but he spoke with such great feeling of deep humility. And he said to me, you know, Ravi, I can tell you what the words are saying here, but I don't really understand. What does it mean to recognize that all there is is Krishna? And I hope that you would find a teaching or a teacher that will assist you to really know this. Now, I should say, I was not at all interested in the Bhagavad Gita or really, I was just walking by when he read it. 
but because of his facial expression and his feeling that had a very great impact on me not because what the words were but what he was because it was the person who was saying that and so that has been one of the major events in my life is it really true that all there is is krishna but krishna himself says this is a rare person who actually recognizes this and a great soul so i would say that was one of the major events actually in my life without my even recognizing it without my trying to get to it or anything like this <laughs> it's like a seed isn't it it it, it planted a seed and the, but there was something in you that recognized the importance of it even at the time um, and retrospectively even more so i would think but i should also say as a young boy little around as a teenager really i was a member of the communist party in india very much against religious priests particularly you know people don't often realize within one's own tradition we look at things microscopically we know all the troubles that the priests are creating you can look at your own christian tradition for example but other traditions we look slightly telescopically just all the what is the grandeur of it you know and <laughs> so within india i was very much against the priests not that i knew anything very much about them but they would just wander around asking for this or that and our project was to get rid of them <laughs> if, if one could manage this and then to come across this remark it was a challenge to my own understanding really yes and did did you have any any mentors when you were at university and and studying that, that were important to you at that time yes well first of all just this little bit of a background in india particularly although it is almost true everywhere there are certain subjects if you are a bright student that's what you do you go to that even if that's not really your special inclination but this was particularly true in india when i graduated from high school which was in 1954 long time ago but the idea was india had recently been become a free country and even our prime minister nehru said the institutes of technology are the temples of new india so if mm. you were a bright student you went into engineering and technology and particularly one institution called the indian institute of technology at a place called khadakpur in bengal was most highly regarded so it was just expected that since i was supposed to be a good student that that's what i will do but i gradually discovered so i ended up doing believe it or not a master of technology in oil exploration <laughs> that's my previous background <laughs> most people don't even know they don't believe this when i say this to people but i remember one day saying to a professor of mine that hell we can we have all kinds of tricks and techniques and occasionally we can even find oil but we don't seem to have any laws of nature that we understand and so i think i should shift to physics i said to him that physics at least deals with the, later on i did shift to physics and but to complete surprise my surprise anyway this gentleman or the professor i said to him what is the real truth he said it seems to me what you are asking for how to find god now i was so much against religion the idea of finding god was not in my vocabulary but somehow his remark equated god with truth in my mind ah this is not unusual many great sages actually speak about love truth and beauty as being more or less 
a way of describing relating with something very high. But at that time, I was completely startled by his more or less equating my search for truth as if I was searching for God. So that also had a great impact on me later on that I should not be just against these words. And then I came across actually some remarks of Vivekananda, a very great sage in India. The remark that specially struck me that religion is not for the weak, it is for the strong of mind and heart. Because I used to think it was for the weak, you see, and the, but his remark somehow shifted something in me. So my attitude to religion actually radically changed after that. <laughs> it was a big shift for me. Yes, I, I, can, I can understand that. So then you did your PhD in physics. And did you then uh, pursue your studies in comparative religion at the same time? No, when I came to Canada, I naturally, this seems to me obvious, most of my friends don't seem to believe it, I'm surprised by this, that every culture is very much influenced by its major religion. Even English language is influenced by the biblical images. There are great texts written about this. So when I came to Canada, until that time, I had actually never met a Christian, at least not knowingly, although there are more Christians in India than in Canada. <laughs> but his percentage is only 3%. <laughs> so, so I may have sat next to somebody who was a Christian. How would I know? In a bus, for example. But I was quite sure that I should learn something about Christianity. That is, after all, the major, every Canadian believes themselves to be Christian, or most Canadians do. And we have holidays at Christmas, at Easter, not when Krishna was born <laughs> or when Buddha was enlightened. So... But my fellow graduate students in physics, this is what I was, I had got a Commonwealth scholarship and I had come to Toronto University. And my fellow graduate students in physics thought I was just nuts, interested in religion, that's just dumb. But one day I overheard one of them say to the other, just slightly in my background, oh, he's from India. That meant he could be weird. <laughs> ah. <laughs> that sort of gave me much freedom <laughs> to be weird because I was from India. <laughs> so I therefore intentionally tried to study something about Christianity, started going to church actually almost every Sunday, much to the shock of my fellow graduate students. Although soon I gave up going to the church, etc., because I discovered People just talk about what Christ said. Nobody's following anything. But I was very struck by certain texts, particularly mystical texts. And I was particularly struck by John's gospel, in which Christ actually says, the Father and I are one. It so much resonated. You know, this is the, some of the great remarks in the Indian tradition. Very old Upanishad, the oldest Upanishad actually says, I am Brahma more or less similar remark. But I was more struck because Christ's remarks are much more in standard usual language. To say I am Brahma is very difficult to understand, but to say the Father and I are one is easier at least to understand what he's talking about. So for me, if I were to say one book that really has influenced me more than any other, it's actually John's Gospel. People are surprised by this because I'm obviously not of Christian background, but later on, because of my interest in it, I ended up writing a book on John's gospel. So many people have been very struck by this. 
But I was looking at it not as a Christian, but as a person from outside the Christian tradition, but really very struck by the teaching of Christ, which seems to me is an absolutely remarkable sage. It has never crossed my mind <laughs> that one has to be limited only to the Indian sages. I think Bede Griffiths made, made a similar connection there, because I remember when he talked at Mystics and Scientists in 1992, he was talking about the, the non-dual teaching, exactly what you've been saying coming out of the Gospel of John. And he, he himself experienced that. Did, did you meet Father Bede at any point? No, I never had a chance to meet him. But he was living in India for many years. He was. He was. I, wa I wanted to ask you a, a little bit about uh, both Krishnamurti and Madame de Saltzman in terms of your interaction and what you learned from them. Maybe, maybe starting with Krishnamurti. Yes. Well, I, in fact, I described this even in one of the articles which was published by the Indian the Krishnamurti Foundation in India at his memorial 100 years they like the article, but there I try to describe. When I first met Krishnamurti, I did not know who he was, which is slightly ironic. Mm. My wife had wanted me to deliver something to the person where Krishnamurti was staying. And he was sitting in the porch there, so I asked him if Mrs. the lady is at home. So he says he'll go and look. But I kept looking at this man. He had a remarkable presence, but I had no idea who he was. <laughs> then when I went away, I kept looking back at him. In fact, there were some goats were coming on the street. I, my bicycle, I was on a bicycle. I ran into them and I fell down even. I kept looking at him. But a few weeks later in Varanasi, at another place, this was in Delhi, what I just described to you. But then a few weeks later, because my wife had taught in a Krishnamurti school in India before we had met. So we went there and because of her, they set up an appointment for me to meet Krishnamurti. And, but about half an hour before meeting him, I found myself in a great turmoil. But suddenly something was very clear to me that all my turmoil was arising from the fact that I wanted to impress him with my question. Ah. And recognizing that, I had a great insight. In fact, I have since then felt that was one of the greatest insights I have had. That even if I met somebody with the wisdom of the Buddha and Christ combined, they still cannot answer any of my serious questions. That I have to inquire this myself. It has to become a quest for me. Nobody can answer my deep questions. That became so clear to me. So when Krishnamurti he was very fond of being very exact on time, partly trying to make corrections in India where nobody cares for time. So precisely at four o'clock, he opens the door. And so first of all, I'm surprised to see this man who I had met <laughs> hardly 10 days earlier in Delhi, <laughs> that he's the same man. Oh. <laughs> but so he invites me in, says we sit down on a kind of a big divan once and he sits, I sit on the other end. So what can I do for you? And it, I was so absolutely clear inside. I said, nothing, I just wanted to look at you. <laughs> that was my first meeting with him. <laughs> so we just sat there quietly looking at each other, <laughs> but probably no more than five minutes really because the mind just carries on, you know? So he then asked me, 
what my background was. And I remember saying to him that I have just finished a PhD in physics in Toronto, and that people think I'm an educated man, but I feel that I don't really know anything real or real anything true. And that I don't feel that I'm educated in any real sense of the word. And so he then looked at me. He said, well, that's the kind of thing the philosophers and the scientists do. They don't know themselves. <laughs> they don't know the truth. This is Krishnamurti. So I thought I should ask him something. And I asked him what takes place after death. Big question. And yeah, he looked at me. He says, he says, you don't know anything about life. Why bother about death? <laughs> <laughs> So, so we just had a little bit of an exchange for about half an hour. Then he takes me, he, this was in Varanasi, overlooking the Ganga. And it was the time of the year when the Ganga was in full spate. Very large, it's a very large river. If you have not been there, you'll be quite surprised by it, actually. Especially in the monsoon season. So from, he takes me to the window and we are sitting there, standing there. He has his, puts his hand on my shoulder and we are looking at the dark clouds coming and some birds are flying here there. One bird coming out of the clouds. Then he says, look at that bird. Sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't. That is the truth about reality. <laughs> ah. Then he said, I'm certain we'll meet again. So that was my first meeting with Krishnamurti. Although not really the first meeting, I actually saw him earlier, but I did not know he was Krishnamurti. <laughs> yes. So um, he was very influential, and you wrote a, a, a short book about him. Yes, he was very influential. But my, always my impression was, I even actually said this to him, listening to him was like listening to celestial music, as far as I was concerned. In fact, the expression I used was a very Indian expression. It's called Gandharva music, which more or less means celestial music. But then if I want to play Do-Re-Mi, it's not clear to me what is to be done. This is where I find Gurjeev teaching is really the path to what Krishnamurti is teaching. It's what do you practice? What do you try? And in fact, just since you mentioned Madame Salzman, on one occasion, uh, she was very great admirer of Krishnamurti. Because Krishnamurti actually spoke the truth. There is no denying of this. The only question was, how do you get to that truth? So on, in, on one occasion, we were speaking about Krishnamurti, and she said, clearly, he has being. You can see this. But Gurjeev brought a science of being. And personally, I have much agreement with this perspective. In fact, on one occasion, this slightly different occasion, several years later, because I met Krishnamurti over 20 years, many times. In his way of speaking, truth can descend to you. You cannot ascend to the truth. This is absolutely universal idea. I can't determinedly go to heaven or go to God and say, here I am and let me in. Ultimately, one needs to submit to the unknowable mystery. That I think every tradition would say. But then my question to him was, okay, Krishnaji, should I just go and have another beer and let the truth descend on me? Is anything required from my side to become more receptive to this truth? To me, 
that is really what is meant by the science of being. How can I become more and more receptive to universal truths, to spiritual truths, to God, if you like, Holy Spirit? Because it's not that I can summon them, I can command them, but how do I become more and more receptive to imagine that I don't need to do anything on my part? I don't believe this is true. But as you know, in Christian context, this is, has been the ongoing argument between effort and grace. Indeed. <laughs> sometimes one gets carried away with effort, sometimes with grace. But really, in a way, both are required. To me, it seems obvious. But Well, Guy Claxton, I remember, once said at a meeting, our task is to make ourselves enlightenment prone. One has to make some effort, but one can't guarantee any results. That's right. <laughs> but the effort has to be towards becoming more and more receptive. Yes, I, I like that. I like that. And Ravi, can you tell us about maybe another key moment of insight in your work in relation to the nature of consciousness? Yes, I have had several different experiences. One of them, maybe, which I have actually fairly frequently, mostly in meditation, that a clear shift in understanding, it is not my consciousness, but consciousness in me. Yes. That shift sounds maybe very simple in words, but it's a very remarkable shift in whenever it takes place, which is not very frequently but it has lots of implications. Among them being that at the best, my body and my mind is like a vessel in which some nectar has somehow come. But it is not that I have created this nectar. And then one can see practically everywhere the suggestion that it, is much more clearly expressed in the Indian tradition, but you can find this even in with Meister Eckhart or John of the Cross, so on, that an element of divinity, call it breath of God in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, which is really what is keeping me alive. I often remind people, we use the expression, I am breathing. It is completely silly. I didn't design this breathing apparatus. I wouldn't have the foggiest idea even how to make my nails. <laughs> to make breathing apparatus would be amazing. Or the air that I need to breathe. I am actually being breathed. Exactly what the book of Genesis actually says. God created human beings from the earth and then breathed his own breath into them to make them alive. So as long as I am alive, it's the breath of God which is keeping me alive. But why is he keeping me alive? Then the general suggestion is more clearly expressed in the Indian tradition that God has created the whole universe at different levels of consciousness, which we can see. But that every level of consciousness is wishing to return home, <laughs> wishing to come to God. So it wants to evolve. In order to evolve, it needs to undertake some action. That's why it needs a body or the mind. So this particle of divinity or the spirit has taken on my body as well as your body to assist that particle to evolve. So sometimes we have a linguistic expression as if my body has the soul. It's the other way around. The soul has the body <laughs> for its purposes. Mm -hmm. 
I agree. <clears throat> yes. And what what implications does this understanding or does your overall understanding of consciousness have for the way you live your life? Well, really to ask myself periodically or whenever I can seriously be quieter, why have I been created? If it is actually true that a particle of divinity has started breathing in me, but only for a few decades. And now at my age, I can hardly even say a few decades, there should be just a few more years at the best. <laughs> and so then wonder why. So these two, two questions, which are very intimately related with each other, actually arise. What am I? Or people often say, who am I? And why am I here? Because it's so transient, my being here, the galaxies will still turn. <laughs> the universe is not organized around me. But if it is true that there is actually a spiritual element, I can't dismiss that it has some intention, some purpose. Because this is actually one of my difficulties with usual assumptions of modern science, that it is all randomly just created from matter without any consciousness. It never has appealed to me, even when I was thoroughly immersed in studying physics. Because the whole notion that the spiritual element has some consciousness to it, even at my level, at, even at the level of the mosquito, it has some consciousness to it. And so that there is an intention and a purpose. And to discover that is actually one's raison d'etre, as far as I'm concerned. And, but we cannot figure this out with the ordinary mind. In fact, even the greatest scientists actually would say, we need, they use the word intuition rather than feeling, but it's actually the suggestion in all spiritual teachings that the heart is the first instrument to receive something true much sooner than the brain can do that. I sometimes quote people, Pascal, obviously not a negligible scientist, actually said, heart has reasons that reason does not know. Which is why I sometimes say that the so-called age of enlightenment, which also gets called age of reason, is a completely wrong name, wrong label. To dismiss feeling, what happens to poetry, music, everything? which is why William Blake was so annoyed with this. He called Newton, Locke, and Bacon as members of an infernal trinity. This is a direct quote from William Blake. And, and he wanted the fourfold vision rather than the single eye. That's right. And because of, since you had mentioned about imagination, of course, imagination can be pure fantasy as well, but otherwise, there is a very interesting remark actually of Aristotle, hardly a negligible philosopher. When philosophy is unable to come to truth, one takes recourse to mythology. You see, this is where the difficulty is. The underlying assumption in all spiritual teachings is that there are levels of reality subtler than the mind. Therefore, the mind needs to be quietened. 
you read any spiritual practice. You can look at John of the Cross or really any Christian, Muslim. This is not coming from India exclusively, although it comes from India as well. The very opening sutra in the Yoga Sutra or the first substantial sutra is to be free of all the movements of the mind. Yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodha. Yoga is stopping all the movements of the mind. Now, so you see the call is, as long as the mind is overtaking, it does not allow us to connect with the levels of reality subtler than the mind. And may even deny them. Yes, yes. And then very much the suggestion not to be against the mind. It's a little bit like saying a microscope is not the real knower, but we can have a good microscope or a bad microscope. But scientist is the knower in that case. Similarly, the suggestion is that we have within ourselves something subtler than the mind. Sometimes you, this is called the eye of the heart or the eye of contemplation. Yes, especially the heart would be the first thing because as I said earlier, see the trouble is with ordinary emotions are just anxiety, worry, resentment, anger. That's not what any great sage is recommending. There are subtler feelings such as a sense of wonder, a sense of compassion, a sense of gratitude. Whenever one is connected with them, one is not so occupied with resentment or anxiety or worry. And those feelings bring one closer to reality sooner than the mind. But then the mind, after all, if the Buddha is going to say something, he still has to use the language. So there is no need to be against the mind. He needs to know the subject, object predicate to be expressing, to construct a sentence. So there is no need to be against the mind, but to find its proper place, which is not at the very top of the instruments of, which is what I repeatedly keep saying that unless one has the eyes of the spirit, this is St. Paul, not I'm more or less quoting St. Paul. Eyes of the spirit see the things of the spirit eyes of the flesh, the things of the flesh. So how do I develop the eyes of the spirit? That is higher or subtler than the eyes of the mind. And this, I think, is one of the, the thrusts of the Galileo Commission report, that, that we can access these deeper and subtler aspects of reality or levels of reality. Which is why, as you know, whenever you have invited me, especially recently, I try to say that scientists themselves need to undertake a kind of an inner transformation so that they can actually open the eyes of the spirit. They may use other labels. We don't need to get stuck on labels here. Maybe one could say they could connect with a higher level of consciousness. That would be the same thing. And then one could actually study what is, what is above the level of the mind. But, and then compare notes, as it were. But these characters come to some truth subtler than the mind, then try to express it as clearly as they can in intellectual terms. And some of them more or less manage to do it, but then others argue with them. For example, Nagarjuna said something, Shankara argues with it. All that will go on. <laughs> this is what keeps the philosopher's jobs going. Indeed. And then, <laughs> Ravi, uh, I think we've been talking about some very essential themes in life, and certainly essential for for myself, and, and I'm sure for many of our listeners. I just wanted to ask you 
is there any particular proverb or saying that you keep coming back to, which is central to you or very important to you? Yes, it is. Actually, I was very struck by a remark of Basho, a Japanese haiku writer. In fact, I quote this in the very front page of my book on the Bhagavad Gita even. What he said is the following. Seek not to follow the footsteps of the wise of old. Seek what they sought. Very good. Seek what they sought. You see, otherwise, for example, Christ is after all talking to people of Jewish background in Aramaic. The Buddha is talking to Hindu background people, or likely in Pali. And therefore, language has its effect. Music has its effect. It changes one's understanding. So if I wish to just follow that, what they said or did, it can lead to something. But I need to seek what they sought rather than to copy their, that I should leave my wife, leave my child, as the Buddha did, and go in search of, go in the woods, undertake austerities, all that. I don't think that is the requirement. This comes back to one of your earlier remarks in relation to Krishnamurti, that we have to answer these questions for ourselves. We have to undertake the quest for ourselves. Exactly. In this respect, um, Ravi, is there any advice that you would give to your younger self from what you know now? Yes. the (laughs) The thing that I very strongly recommend to, in fact, to myself periodically, or to anybody who will listen to me, is to become a searcher rather than a believer. Don't be against belief. After all, I can initially temporarily believe that what Christ said is worth listening to, what the Buddha said is worth listening to. But then if Christ says, for example, I just take one remark to to be able to construct sentences here. He said, unless you leave yourself behind, you cannot be a follower of mine. Now, I can believe this, I can say this, and get to gradually become a priest, and keep quoting this. But if I am a searcher, I need to ask, what is the self that I need to leave behind? And how do I go about it? How do I... So therefore, one would immediately see that self-inquiry or self-study becomes a fundamental requirement. But you will never find even that expression in any of the canonical gospels. But the moment you look at any non-canonical gospel, you immediately find this emphasis. So you see the trouble. In my judgment, I often say, in fact, my partner thinks I'm saying it too strongly, that religions have done more harm to spiritual search than any other institution. They just want you to become believers rather than searchers. So if I had to give any advice to any young person, that's what I would say. Be a searcher, but no need to be against belief. Temporarily, supposing Einstein proposes some theory, temporarily I accept it, but then does it correspond to any observations or not? So even if the Buddha said something or Christ said something, sure, because they are wise people, many cultures regard them as very wise. There is no point in my dismissing them. So I accept it. So in that sense, I believe it. But then I need to soon begin to ask, how does it apply to me? Otherwise, 
you're back to the science of being <clears throat> and, and then treading your own path. Yeah. So, Ravi, that's been a fascinating discussion or exposition on your part. And thank you very much indeed for joining Imaginal Inspirations. Well, <laughs> thank you very much for inviting me to speak to you. I'm always delighted to talk 